All I would say is be critical. You think critically. If you think critically and you don't just coast, you'll raise questions that are completely salient to what the product is. Um, I can't say that it's some broad piece of advice like you get what you pay for, because that's not always the case. Uh, I can't say that there's a gold standard uh, in, uh, in processing. I mean, the fact is, is we have this unbelievable abundance of inexpensive and highly nutritious food in Canada. Um, but if you really care about certain things, then, then walk into a grocer and think critically about how you spend your dollar. Welcome to Of Council. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. This week's episode of Of Counsel will stimulate not only your intellect, but your appetite as we speak to one of Canada's only food lawyers, Glenford Jameson. Glenford is a legal trailblazer. In 2017, he was awarded the highly prestigious Precedent Setter Award that recognizes innovative and remarkable lawyers within their first 10 years of practice. Glenford is founder and producer to the very popular legal podcast, Welcome to the Food Court. In addition to these remarkable achievements, he's also featured by media as an expert commentator in the area of food regulation and enforcement, an adjunct professor at the Michigan State University College of Law, organizer and founder of various organizations and conferences on food law and active in various communities surrounding food development and regulation. If you've ever wondered, how does one go from selling potato chips at a local farmer's market to distributing them at a national level? Or what the big deal is about bringing beer from Quebec to Ontario? Or even how did those edible bugs get into our local Loblaws? These are just some of the many interesting questions Glenford answers in this episode of Of Counsel. So Glenford, I'm going to ask you uh, the question that you probably get at basically every cocktail party you go to, and that is, what the heck is a food lawyer? Well, that is a really good question, because up until very recently in Canada, there was no such thing. There were a lot of corporate commercial lawyers and a lot of regulatory lawyers and some uh, administrative lawyers and a lot of litigators. Um, a food lawyer is is something different. The best way to explain it, I find, is through analogy. Now, food is is very specialized in its own thing. Uh, food has a lot of particular aspects to it. It's usually highly perishable. It poses great risk to health and safety. It has remarkable supply chain implications, a lot of international trade, and that sort of thing. Uh, and those are unique factors that you see in some other areas as well, but but as a group, they're specific to food. Law traditionally has had a hard time organizing knowledge into uh, ways that industries understand. Typically, we approach knowledge in a way that we understand, so we silo things out. So think of first-year law school. You have contract law, property law, criminal law, uh, and and those all make sense, and so you 
create a silo of contract law and you talk about what a contract is and you think of consideration and uh, what's breach and what are remedies under those circumstances. What law has done uh, really from the 1980s forward is it's it's changed that approach to something that's more uh, outward looking. So food is new, but if we look at uh, health law and we look at entertainment law, these are two areas in which being industry focused and being sensitive to the group of legislation that manages uh, issues that come up in those areas, they're very old. So if you were a doctor and you started a practice in the 1980s, you'd hire a corporate commercial lawyer to start up your practice and an estates person to get ready, ready for your will and so on, uh, an admin lawyer when you're dealing with a college, a litigator to deal with mal, and, uh, and so you'd have essentially a team of counsel. And now there are health law practice groups where folks essentially, they may not do all of those things, right. but they're so intimately familiar with what's reasonable, what are professional obligations, what statutes govern this, this area of practice, and what does the college expect that they can deliver a higher level of, of legal service, even though they're, they're practicing in traditional areas. They've essentially, they've, they've combined these things to give something that's more useful to the client. And so that, as I understand it, then is exactly what you're doing with food law. And what I think is really interesting, it seems like you're touching upon is when you get into all these types of uh, industries and sub-industries, there's all these laws floating around that people don't really realize at the time. Like imagine when you pick up a bag of potato chips, you don't think all of the laws and, and advice and regulations that go into something like that. You know, looking at your website, for example, touching the, uh, the tip of the iceberg here, but you're dealing with food inspection, labeling, uh, leasing for restaurants, uh, importation, exportation, um, all sorts of, of, of stuff like that. So here's a here's a really, uh, I hope is a basic question. If I'm picking up that bag of potato chips, right, and I'm looking at it and thinking, oh, these chips are organic and they're only 120 calories, what do you see as a food lawyer? The chips are a great example because chips uh, are something that everyone's familiar with and they really don't seem to pose that much of a risk. But I mean, when we approach any food law problem, the first question is sort of defining what is it, right? So is it a food or a drug or a natural health product? Uh, is it is it something that could be used entirely differently? I mean, we have regulations for cosmetics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we look at that, we say it's probably a food. Uh, if it's a food, has it been uh, produced and made exclusively in the province of Ontario? And it's like, if that's the case, then most of the federal food law legislation that we have can go out the window because it's simply a matter of, uh, of the provincial jurisdiction. If it starts to cross borders, then all of a sudden you have this huge uh, amount of regulations from uh, consumer labeling to, uh, to packaging and competition act, all these things apply all of a sudden. So you're saying even like, let's say I want to buy some chips from Quebec uh, as a, as a variety store. And I think, oh, there's some great chips that they're selling in Quebec. Even that causes complications. So if you're crossing the border, yeah, uh, sure, definitely. Well, I mean, so like, here's the easiest way. I mean, so chips are a little bit difficult because typically a producer of chips that anyone's familiar with here. Yeah is going to be a national brand, right? Okay. Uh, and in Canada, uh, we're set up with um, essentially an oligopoly in our grocers uh, with with very few that we all sort of shop at. And they require that uh, labeling is compliant with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and federal legislative standards. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're inspected as though they're a federal, federal entity as well. But if you think about uh, meat and buying meat, uh, there are two very different standards in the province of Ontario. There's the federal standard. So think uh, you're buying cattle that was um, that was pastured and 
and maybe butchered in Alberta and then thrown in a cold car and brought to Toronto right. and then distributed to, uh, to your local Sobeys or Loblaws or Metro. Uh, but there are also abattoirs in the province of Ontario, uh, producers and places to buy Ontario pastured, butchered, and, and uh, ready-for-market beef. And they have two completely different life licensing regimes. Uh, so, so federally, you're dealing with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Provincially, you're dealing with the Ontario Ministry of Food, Agricultural Affairs, and Rural Affairs. I've butchered that name, but so imagine this: imagine I come to you, and I've got this great little startup farm. I've and it really catches on, and people are loving um, uh, this particular type of produce that I'm, I'm generating. Or even maybe I've got a, a chicken coop, and I start to sell all these eggs. Um, and I go to grocery stores and, and start selling them. Um, what's running through your mind as a food lawyer as I'm doing this and as my business grows? Oh, man. Well, so eggs is a wonderful example, right? Because you're heading into this uh, supply management regime that we've got in terms of having a quota and being able to sell eggs. And there was a case in front of the Supreme Court in the fall called Como that governed, that was related to transporting alcohol across provincial borders. But the case that was referenced almost, well, as an underlying, um, underlying support below that was Richardson, which was primarily about mobility rights in the context of egg marketing. So someone was making eggs in Quebec, I believe, and selling them in Ontario. And the question was, well, the province has rules about this. Can you take it from one province to another? The feds don't really have a lot of rules about it. And so, um, so these are actual, I mean, you're using as a hypothetical, but these are, these are our prime constitutional cases that most students would take and for, read in first year constitutional law without realizing that they're really, I mean, food specific, like supply right. management and egg, making eggs in Canada. There's so much policy, uh, agricultural policy and consumption policy behind the framework that we have there. Right. It's, it's like, like little else. And it's, it's sort of uh, like a, a critical problem with all of our international trade agreements. The first question is, can we bring eggs or? If I come into your office and say, okay, look, I've got all these eggs and I want to sell some of them in Quebec and some people in BC want them. Um, well, how do you triage that as a food lawyer? Uh, is <laughs> that too, too well, wild of a question? Well, well, let's, I mean, so let's, let's dial back to something that's a little more straightforward, like, like potato chips. Okay. So, so you're making potato chips, you're selling them at a farmer's market in, right. in Toronto and, uh, you're getting a great reception to them and you're really quite pleased. Uh, and so you're concerned about, uh, regulation, you're concerned about food safety, uh, you're concerned, uh, about, um, uh, yeah, being able to grow your business. And so, so we look at those things and we say, okay, so, so what does it mean to be compliant in the province of Ontario? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so often there's a, a municipal layer and then a provincial layer that you need to comply with. And, uh, and are you labeling things effectively? Have you got this product testing? I mean, to make things in a very small way, even if it's prepackaged, uh, there are many exemptions from having a nutrition facts table, for example. Um, but as soon as you start scaling up, all of a sudden, uh, there are language requirements, there are size requirements. I mean, the amount of prescriptive regulation over packaging in Canada as it relates to food is truly shocking. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful for the consumer, assuming the consumer understands what those labels mean, uh, when they're buying prepackaged goods. But, but a potato chips, no longer something you can pull out of a vat of oil and throw in a paper bag and sell for a couple bucks. It's something that's needs to be shelf stable and have, uh, date markings on it. 
uh, and contents and uh, and outline like, precisely what's in the product. Well, we see this, you know, a lot where you will have, you know, these small companies, exactly what you're saying, where these they start out of these farmer markets, um, you know, like maybe creating granola bars or something like that, and they really catch on. Is there like a critical tipping point that you see as a food lawyer where, okay, now you really need to start thinking about what you're doing um, as opposed to just setting up a table? Yeah, sure. Well, like in a lot of ways, our regulatory system sets up for that. Uh, so the meat example is a, is a great one, I think. Uh, in BC and in Quebec, there are pilot programs for super small scale uh, meat producers, small enough to be able to process the meat in a mobile abattoir. If someone shows up at your farm with a trailer that's licensed and is clean and meets provincial standards, but is mobile so that you don't have to drive uh, four or five hours to get to your local abattoir because there isn't a chicken abattoir in Thunder Bay. So you have to go to Sault Ste. Marie, let's say. I'm making these up. but uh, and, and then once you scale up, then you deal with standard abattoirs. And then once you scale up to a national level, then you're dealing with federally licensed abattoirs. And at each stage, you're dealing with a significantly greater degree of regulation. Right. So in terms of uh, of hazard awareness and pathogens, in terms of of how regulated they are, if there's a person present to um, uh, to at those initial stages, things that are quite small. So your I guess your role then is as people are progressing through these types of stages, you're sort of guiding them and saying, okay, now this is what's coming up. This is what you need to do. Is that do I have that right? Sure. Well, so that's that's certainly part of it. I mean, food is food has got this intractable problem where it's primarily built on strict liability regulation, mm-hmm. with virtually no room for due diligence. Um, but food sickness happens and illness happens, right? And so you, it's it's like trying to advise people how to drive on the four hundred one. It's like the speed limit is a hundred. It's like you're going to go one hundred and twenty. You're going to be breaking the law like every time you get in your car and drive. Right. Um, but uh, we need to figure out sort of in a soft way what's reasonable, uh, even though in a very strict sense, like once you cross that threshold, you are you have committed a regulatory offense. And assuming you did the act, there's nothing a lot more to talk about. One thing I think is really neat about food, and certainly in the area of law, is how um, far food producers um, will push the envelope of, you know, the most basic question that you said initially is what is food? And I think uh, there was an article recently that you um, that the Globe and Mail had covered, uh, where you were in uh, talking about how one company actually wanted to uh, sell edible bugs to eat. Yeah, <laughs> that was super fun. I actually have permission to talk about that Great. as well. Let's hear about. I mean, well, so so the initial piece in terms of pressing the envelope, I've actually. Uh, I mean, so there are, there are moments where I'm, I'm really disappointed in our federal regulators and provincial regulators, but they're by and large a group of remarkably talented and helpful people. Uh, and so if you invent a new food, uh, like something that's never seen the market before, uh, then there's a process for dealing with that. And so there's actually a committee in Ottawa called the uh, Novelty Food Determination Group. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a remarkable group of, uh, of uh, chemists and microbiologists and food scientists and, uh, and, and folks that are just thinking about, well, how is this truly novel? Like, is this a departure from what's on the market? What's interesting, though, is, is they, they, they have to make these decisions outside of, of whether it's safe or not. So really, the first question is, is it new? And so mm. the really hard questions relate to genetically engineered foods. Uh, so if you're creating a new salmon that's never existed before, 
It's like, how different is it from previous salmon is like a very valid question. Uh, in this instance, we were dealing with a specific type of cricket. And, uh, and so, so you're asked to prove, uh, is a cricket a novel food? And so their goalposts, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, they want to see a population of roughly a million people who have eaten the, th- the thing uh, over three generations and for it to have been a substantial part of those people's diets. So like the goalposts are really intense. And in terms of insect consumption, uh, the UN did a report, I'm going to say now it's seven or eight years ago, and they essentially said the problem with insects is that no one in the first world eats them or in the West eats them, and therefore they have no regulations over what they are. Uh, are they meat? Are they shellfish? Are they, um, like, what are they governed by? We don't know. Uh, and in the third world or in the developing world, uh, most, most cultures make room for bugs and eat them as a viable source of protein. They're, they don't have any regulations for them. And mm-hmm. so, so it's left the entire world in a lot of ways scratching their head to figure out, well, how do we deal with the, these from a food safety perspective, from a digestibility perspective? And one of the major issues you run into with uh, crickets is, is a lot of the cricket is shell, right? It's exoskeleton. And uh, those are really high in proteins. But the question is, like, are they digestible? Like, can a kid eat those? Can you feed a kid? Uh, 100 grams of roasted crickets a day? Will it mess up their, their tracts? Uh, right. These are concerns that we have. Uh, and we don't know the answers to them, or at least we the answers aren't evident. And so you so, need to ask these questions and look at what other jurisdictions have done. So are these the types of questions and testing that this novelty food group will engage in? Yeah. Well, so, so novelty is is funny because they, they have the task of, of assessing whether something's novel or not. If it's not novel, then you can head into the marketplace, assuming that it's that it's safe according to all of our sure. other food legislation. And then I guess all the other regulations kick in, and that's that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, if it is novel, then we have a pre-market notification process that takes, um, it's supposed to take about a year and a half. Uh, and that's where you get into real food safety questions of, uh, okay, so this is a new food. How are we going to deal with this? Um What's its shelf stability like? What's uh, uh, what's the likelihood of certain pathogens developing in it? Should it be marketed to kids? Can you sell it in convenience stores? Uh, like larger policy issues relating to food safety and relating to the item. And uh, hopefully it's it's a pretty quick process. Sometimes it can be quite long. Um, and, and they usually come in batches. Now, what I was doing with this crickets piece was quite unusual because most of the files that these groups see relate to uh, either a new type of processing or a new type of engineering. So, so if you look at, uh, and Health Canada posts, uh, I'm not sure if they post all of their decisions on novelty or not, but they certainly post decisions on, or related to um, the pre-market notification process. And for a while, it was all about high pressure uh, pasteurization. So essentially like, like crushing something into a place where uh, like without heating it up, it's been sterilized. Uh, and so now there's a huge policy on uh, when that's new and when it's not and what process it has to go through. But when that first shows up, you've got uh, a team of people in Ottawa that need to figure out the answer, right? And right. I mean, food legislation is is funny stuff. I mean, half of it sort of falls under the criminal law power federally, right? So this is public health. It's broad and purposive. We're worried about people being harmed and, and a CFI officer acting under the Food and Drugs Act essentially has the same power as a cop right. in terms of the ability to investigate and to look around and 
uh, and assess threat and risk. So what's the bottom line? Can we eat bugs or what? Uh, well, according to Health Canada, you certainly can. And actually, I'm really proud. You've seen uh, in Loblaws, uh, they've recently rolled out uh, a bunch of bug products. And it's, uh, I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. Because we get more concerned about sustainability issues, yeah. uh, you start to look at ways to generate protein that are less intensive than cattle or, um, uh, or, or herds of pigs or, or flocks of sheep, or sorry, uh, uh, chickens or sheep. Uh, it's just, it's a hyper-efficient way of, of creating protein. You know, I, as we talk about all this stuff, it's very novel, certainly to me, and I'm sure a lot of, uh, to, to a lot of our listeners as well. Um, I, I'm curious how you got set down this path, you know, in, in law school, perhaps in general, but more focused, how did food law uh, strike you in a way that you thought, this is something that I want to you know, dedicate my life to. And I, and, you know, I know that there's other regulatory law that you do. It's not the only thing, but, but you have such focus and perhaps, um, you know, as much as one can focus in their career, it's about food law for you. So how did it all start? Uh, in terms of food, uh, my dad made kitchens as a, so as a kid, I grew up in a shop and, uh, and he'd build out kitchens for restaurants and, and people's homes, that sort of thing. So, notionally somehow that's related although more to the style of practice that i have which is having a small law firm uh there was some food focus in my undergrad which was uh in history and poli sci and economics and after undergrad i worked at a law firm for two years uh that specialized in estates and family law it was called bales beale llp an amazing firm uh and at that firm i learned very quickly that i enjoyed being a lawyer but i had zero appetite for being a litigator um, and going to law school, then my focus was on, on doing corporate commercial work. Uh, so business law focused and also regulatory, uh, issues came up quite a bit as well. Uh, I was in law school during the financial meltdown, uh, in 2008. Uh, and so there were a lot of questions about what a regulator should be doing and how it should be protecting people and when there's overreach and what should be in place. Uh, I wrote a paper that was probably horrible. I haven't read it in a long time, let's say nine years, uh, on uh, highly perishable products in the international trade uh, context uh, for insurers. So so bringing, at that point in time, I think burrata was a new thing in Ontario. And so there were shipments of burrata that's best eaten within 48 hours of when it's made. They were being shipped from a remote part of Italy, Apulia, uh, thrown on a plane, thrown on a plane again, got to Toronto, needed to clear customs, then get to a grocery store within 48 hours. The idea being that you have your name on a list, you prepaid for it, and then you go and eat it. And so it's the question of insuring that product and how you deal with uh, the regulatory piece is mm-hmm. a huge deal. Um, uh, and so so that's sort of the first part of, of the germination of this idea of, of, of food-specific issues. Uh, in my career. Uh, and then when I was articling and summering, I touched a lot of files that had a corporate commercial element and a regulatory element. Uh, and so uh, it could relate to, to tea makers adding uh, uh, therapeutic products or, or natural health products into, into their blends to give them added health benefits and right. how you do that. And then how do you sell that company if, if you're doing that? How early on would you say you saw sort of this vision in your mind of, you know, I, I sort of see food law, something that can be pursued. And more importantly, how am I going to form that into a business? Um, did that come in law school or was it more once you sort of got into the fray of working in a, a firm? The best answer to that, um, what I saw 
in the late 2000s was this hyper-fracturization of uh, what used to be a very and is still uh, hyper-aggregated industry. Uh, and so if you talk about sort of stories in food over the last 20 years, the number one story in North America would have to be the organics market, right? Which went sure. from this fringe thing that folks from granola eaters from Vermont would eat to now every grocery store and many convenience stores have an organic section. Every, and yeah, every the single market one. is worth a huge amount of money. And now we're thinking more about like the ethical treatment of animals and we're thinking about how products are made and being able to trace supply chains. That didn't exist in 1995, right? right? All food policy essentially was based on whether it makes people sick or not. And then everything after that was based on price. And so if Health Canada was thinking about regulatory action, those were the two triggers. Now we're seeing uh, regulatory action on, uh, not only on the regulatory side, we're seeing regulatory action on, on ethical claims and uh, country of origin issues. Um, but we're also on the, the commercial side, which is also a large part of my practice, we're seeing uh, smaller firms starting up and being more successful, making that climb from zero to say a $5 million valuation. Right. And we're also seeing these hyper aggregated firms buying what used to be sort of their threshold was 25 or $30 million transactions. Now they're hopping down into much smaller companies to pick up brands that target these new weirdo consumers. They don't entirely understand at $5 million or at $8 million a firm. And so as a young lawyer, uh, who is hungry for work, uh, that seemed like a really uh, untapped market uh, because those smaller firms weren't really firms that large, sorry, those smaller entities, those smaller firms like businesses, enterprises, uh, they, weren't, uh, they weren't necessarily being pursued at that time by larger firms. And they needed general counsel in a lot of ways more than they needed uh, a corporate commercial lawyer. And so, so in designing my practice at that time, the thought was, well, uh, I like this regulatory stuff quite a bit. It fits into how I like to practice. I like the corporate commercial stuff quite a bit. I've got some expertise in both. I feel confident in those. And so I developed those areas with a view to acting almost as, as general counsel for a firm. Uh, and, and when employment issues came up, we could refer it out to an employment lawyer. Uh, and, uh, and if litigious issues come up, we'd get a litigator. But uh, for those core questions that a smaller business needs, an SME needs, I was able to provide that advice. And what's interesting, you know, as you're describing this, I'm almost picturing this, you know, this big river and then all these little tributaries sort of flowing off eventually, like you describe it as uh, fracturing. And rather than stay in this huge river, as many big firms will and continue to represent the big names of, of the food industry, you sort of went off with the, the farmers markets and all these other places who now are coming back into the big stream or perhaps creating their own big rivers of organic markets and gluten-free markets and all these other markets that all these new regulations have to um, uh, deal with. And uh you know, I think I think that's something to be commended because uh, one of the bigger um, challenges I would think for a lot of young lawyers is having that vision, not just the vision, but also the courage in thinking. I'm going to go down this um, little tributary rather than staying in this larger flow. So. My question to you is how does a younger lawyer, not just necessarily in food, but but just in this idea of what you've created as a hyper-specialized practice, how does one gain the courage to do that? How do they gain the vision? And what would you say to someone in that position uh, where you were perhaps five years ago? Well, a critical part 
is, and this is going to sound really lame, but is, is knowing yourself and what you're comfortable or most comfortable doing. Uh, for me, I mean, so I, I was called to the bar at 29 and there's this wonderful thing that happens in around 30 and it's that you have this incredible, um, knowledge of where you succeed and where you don't, right? Like at 30, you should have experienced some spectacular failure and you should also have experienced some success. And I think that at that point in your life, you can create a pattern and figure out, well, what did those moments of success really share? Like what mm. stability did they share? Were you working on a team? Were you working on a loan? Were you leading it? Was it really creative? Did it require a lot of ideation or did it require you to, to really follow a channel? Are you good at writing law school exams uh, is a great question. Man, I was like not a good first year law student. Like I just, I, when you go to buy a dog, you're supposed to put them on their back and choose the dog that struggles the least because it'll be the most trainable. And I was the dog that no one would buy. Like it just <laughs> like it didn't make any sense to me. And I really I struggled with it. Uh, I looked at the patterns of, of success that I had and typically they were on on projects that required some some novelty, like some some creative element to it that wasn't necessarily being done. And they were on projects in which I exhibited a large degree of control. Right. And so it, this barred me from the go from being a securities lawyer at a large law firm. It's like, I'm sure it would be fine, uh, but I don't think that it would be something that would be particularly successful or happy doing. Did you feel, you know, when this is happening and you're sort of looking down, if we continue with the metaphor, these smaller tributaries of what you see uh, happening, I'm sure you were confident in it, right? But uh, that these things were happening, but still you must have felt that am i doing the right thing here you know there's probably people um who think i know this is going to happen but i just don't have the courage to come forward with it so how do you do it yeah so my <laughs> wife thought i was f insane like completely <laughs> nuts uh, this was like not a good idea and i went to law school and you come out of it with a ton of debt and uh you're just starting your life but so much later than most of the colleagues you went to undergrad or high school with that like now is the time to bank it and then if you want to make this decision do it in five to eight years that would make a lot more sense right. um i and at this point she would say the opposite it's like that was a great a great call she didn't see it but it made a lot of sense and that was tough because she acts as my vp of common sense or like right. my common sense are um at home so what would you say, you know, and, and, you know, with a lot of interviews that we've done with remarkable lawyers like yourself, um, there's very few people that we interview, if any, that are generalists. They've all hyper-specialized in their own ways. And what would you say to, you know, a younger lawyer, or not even necessarily a younger lawyer, but a lawyer who's thinking of pursuing their particular path in a very specialized way? Uh, what would you say to that lawyer who has trepidation? Yeah, sure. So, and, and this relates to your first question as well. So first piece is know yourself. Yeah. The second piece is have a really good look at what's going on around you and where need is going to grow. Uh, I, and so that's, that's what drove me into specializing was seeing in the marketplace, there's an underserved market. There's added value that no one else seems to be adding. Other professional services have already made this leap. So have a good look around at what accounting firms are doing, um, how, um, how consultants or business consultants are approaching problems and, and see how they're doing. Law seems to be, and it's getting better, but it seems to be very slow to adapt to change. 
by being ahead of that curve and thinking critically about what's happening around you, it leads you to specialization. Or typically, in, in my instance, this is where uh, where folks have, have led in, in accounting, uh, being industry targeted is a super core part of what they do. Uh, being comfortable with alternative employment arrangements, something that accounting firms are super comfortable with. Law firms, not so much. It's changed over the last three or four years, and it's actually been thrilling to see large law firms sort of change their approach and target individual business. Uh, uh, it sort of confirms my crazy suspicions that there was an underserved market out there. Uh, but, uh, but that specialization piece, it's super important in two ways. For me, it's, it's a great way to stay interested it also makes a lot of law more manageable. So, so if you are completely focused in on a couple areas, it's way easier to stay abreast. The only the thing that makes me the least comfortable in my practice that I see is employment law issues, and it's because I regard employment law in the province of Ontario to be almost completely fluid. Uh, I have a few friends who practice in the area, and they do exclusively that, and it seems like. Uh, the laws about what a what constitutes an enforceable contract is changing almost like month to month. So I just don't do it. Uh, but if you want to talk about any decisions that have come down from the Canada Agricultural Review Tribunal uh, or um, uh, or what's happening with uh, food labeling modernization or what the changes to the Safe Food for Canadians Act are going to mean and what those regulations are going to do to business, I'm all there. And we can talk about it a lot. Uh, and so, so it enables you to be uh, very knowledgeable. It also, I mean, like a lot of clients don't need someone who just says, I'm pretty good at contracts. I think they want someone who's thinking critically about problems and ways to solve them before perhaps they encounter them. Right. So, I mean, earlier we were speaking about, I mean, here's this problem where uh, food safety is something that's just going to exist. Like there's a homeostasis of risk there. It's just never going to be zero. And we've got all of these laws that say as soon as there's a breach, you've committed this uh, this offense and, and, and you're due to pay these fines. And so, so you're continually going to be in breach of the law every time that, uh, uh, that a food safety issue occurs. What do you get from these sorts of efforts to try and um, carve out new things? Like even with the podcast, for example, uh, The Food Court, which is a great name, by the way. Uh, you can find that on iTunes and all the others, I'm sure. Um, what, what motivated you to get that started? Podcasting has been really fun. Um, podcasting arose for two different reasons. One, I've got a great friend who has a podcast. Uh, he's a whiskey writer and reviewer. And so... I have business reasons to go down to Kentucky once a year or so. And so we try and time those trips together, uh, go do some distillery tours, take some meetings. And then we would record an hour, not dissimilar to this, sort of reflecting on our experience, what we learned, what we tasted, uh, and that sort of thing. Super fun process, really entertaining. <laughs> yeah. um, material is equally as juicy as, as what you're covering out of council. Um, so that showed me that this isn't something that's wildly difficult to do. And in fact, it's pretty fun. Uh, and the second piece, I often uh, work with media uh, when they're developing a story. Uh, so, so if there's an issue and something is uh, claimed to be organic and the CFIA is charging them with fraud, then I'm usually a pretty good person to chat with. The issue that I have or I had is 
I would often have these like 30, 35, 40 minute phone calls with folks. Uh, and ultimately I'd have a, a small line in a 400 word article. Right. And so I'd sit there and I'd say, well, okay, so I'm, I'm thrilled that I'm in a paper. That's wonderful. And I will never complain about that ever. But this conversation that we had was so good and it went <laughs> so in depth and there are so many pieces to why this is a compelling problem or case or why what the crown is choosing to do is absurd or wonderful or reflects the state of public trust that that would be so much better captured in some other medium uh so if people are really interested in the area of food fraud they could grab a podcast listen to me chat with someone about it for an hour well, I'm glad you did because I have to say it's one of those podcasts of of, of several that have been um, out as of late. Um, uh, another I can think of, of is um, uh, Countertax Law, uh, Building yeah, New Law. Peter's is, um, is awesome. Yeah, and and podcasts like yourself uh, certainly uh, set others to motivate to to do these sorts of things, and um, that must give you some satisfaction to sort of see these things that you start out um, to develop into new things. Um, one of the other um, questions I have for you, because, you know, you, you when were you called, Glenford, to the bar? Uh, 2012. So 2012, relatively recent call um, to others anyway. And here you are running this very specialized, uh, successful practice, very knowledgeable in food law. Um, what tips would you give to younger lawyers who are just starting out, perhaps in a business sense, of how they get that machine running? For me, I couldn't have started this firm without having worked at Bales Beal for two years before I went to law school. Uh, and while I was there, I learned from who I think is the best lawyer I've ever worked with, who's Karen Bales, who's incredible in the way she runs her practice and the way she approaches files, uh, but also got a sense of, of how a law firm works, right? What it means to have a trust account, um, how clients come and go, what it means to close a file, the sort of like more basic parts that you wouldn't necessarily learn if, if you weren't looking to learn them. They happen all around you, but they don't involve the practice of law, right? Sure. Um, and so that was a huge piece for me was that. And then the second piece, and this is my advice to every student that I talk to, is just get the best training that you can. And if you don't know what you want to do, get the best all-around training that you can. Uh, often that means, no, but not always, often that means going to a larger mid-sized firm, something that's full service, having a look around, being able to essentially be Sean Robichaud and of counsel to a hundred lawyers and go into every one of their offices and, and ask questions. How do you like your practice? How do you manage things? Do you like having to worry about 10 a.m. ex parte motions or being served things on a Thursday after four? If not, like maybe this isn't for you. Let's figure out what is for you. Like what fits your uh, your appetite for conflict in your life uh, or your appetite for setting your own schedule, those sorts of things. So one of the things you said earlier is you um, had a bit of a dislike towards litigation and, um, at least initially, I'm sure you have your inevitable litigation files from here on that you have to deal with. But, um, with that, what I took from that answer is that, uh, life balance is important to you and that you, uh, like to do other things outside of law. So I'm curious, what is, uh, when Glenford, uh, Jameson hangs up the food lawyer, a coat, what does he do outside? That's, uh, well, uh, these days it's a lot of food law. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so, so when you, when I started my practice, I essentially treated that first year, like I was continuously prepping for law school exams or the bar, 
essentially lived out of the law society was trying to, because there's no, or there's very little um, pre-prepared uh, food law CPD. There's no C, uh, food law section at the OBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I essentially had to, to create my own library of what was relevant and read through articles and try and figure out either how they applied to food and potential clients or, or how uh, there was something missing that I needed to find out. Uh, now, I mean, there's uh, a food law series in Hallsbury. It's written by Dr. Don Buckingham, who's the former chair of that tribunal I'm speaking about, CART, who's lovely, and, and that's quite helpful. But that first era, stage, it was just uh, learning all the time. And since then, I have been very lucky. Uh, I've been a co-organizer of two national food law conferences. And so the first was at Dow uh, Law School in Halifax, and the second was at U of Ottawa uh, this past fall. This third one will be at Laval in Quebec City. And so that's uh, something I've spent a lot of, f- I'm doing air quotes, free time, uh, <laughs> thinking about who else is in this space and what are they thinking about how to make it effective for clients and advocate effectively and deal with soft law problems that are behind the scenes and are uh, not grounded in any necessary legal principles. I mean, the problem, one of the problems in food law is that there's, there are very few decisions that we can rely on, right? Like if you have a problem with the CFI and bring something in, you can threaten to sue and then sue, but they've got a wonderful blanket in, in protecting public health and the product that you have is probably perishable. So by the time you get to any resolution, the underlying product is gone and dead or, is not effective. So, so seeking to gun, go in guns blazing and try and litigate your way through a perishable product problem see it with the federal regulator is like not something that's going to work. Do so, you see, um, do you see over the next five years, um, this sort of litigation exploding? Well, not necessarily litigation, but resolution and just the way, um, food law expands, um, with perhaps lawyers like yourself or others who are getting into it and deciding, I want to have a food law practice as well. Um, because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you're saying right now is, um, the government has sort of set the pace as to what is regulated and there's not been much pushback. Uh, do you see, is that true? And if so, is there going to be something different you see in the next five years? I think the feds do a really amazing job of consultation and changes they make to all of the federal regulations and legislation are hugely consulted and they're listened to. Uh, The amount of documents that come out on uh, how we changed our food labels was fascinating, like really interesting. And the amount of references that were given to to various groups that put in comment was was really impressive. Uh, In terms of, of litigation, I mean, we're really, we're seeing two things. So as a food lawyer, I see two things. One is uh, there is an issue related to public trust in our food system. And the CFIA is seems to be tackling things that don't necessarily relate to price or food safety, but instead relate to product claims. Uh, in the criminal law context, bringing fraud charges, bringing very aggressive uh, regulatory charges. Right, and I think and uh, it was uh, it was on one of your more um, one of the podcasts I was listening to where you had touched upon this, where there was a fraud claim brought uh, against a tomato producer in southern Ontario about claims that were being made and ultimately were charged criminally with fraud. Is that right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like through the company to the directors, like serious stuff and that uh, criminal fraud didn't end up sticking. They settled and they pled to a variety of regulatory charges, but they were also uh, they're serving three years probation, which in a corporate context means that anyone, well, the CFI can go in and look through their computers and figure out where they're buying their products from and can ask whatever questions they want of them. Um, Did you see that as a, a sort of precedent setting step, uh, something different in the way uh, food re- regulation is handled uh, up until that time? I did. Be- I do because, well, A, I mean, so the fine, the ultimate fine was roughly, I think, $1.3 million. Uh, and then there was an additional fine from the Ontario Vegetable Greenhouse Growers Association uh, of, I think, $3.5 million. So it's like a $5 million problem. Whoa. And yeah, which is no longer nothing. Those are right? some expensive tomatoes. Those are well, <laughs> and, and but but the really interesting thing for me is this isn't a food safety thing. The tomatoes were brought in from Mexico. If they yeah. been sold as Mexican tomatoes, probably for the same price, there would have been zero problem. Uh, the issue is that I'm guessing this company Muchi couldn't fill their orders with Canadian tomatoes they already signed off on, and so they replaced them with Mexican tomatoes instead of being forthright and saying, "Look, we don't have any Canadian tomatoes to sell you. I know we promised you these things." Farmers grow things. Sometimes they grow, sometimes they don't. Have these Mexican tomatoes instead and moving forward. But no one's getting sick. There's no real worry over the food safety aspect to it. It's actually, can we trust labels that we read? And that for me is very interesting. And how would they even find that out though? Like how would anyone know looking at a tomato, especially if mixed in with others, that these tomatoes are from a different country? Sure. The fact set on that is uh, at the Ontario Food Terminal. So in the west end of the city, uh, there was a pack of, I believe, red peppers. Uh, and individually, the peppers were marked product of Canada, but they were in a product of Mexico cardboard box. And so in, uh, one of the guys at the warehouse was like, that, that, that looks weird. We should ask some questions. Uh, and, uh, and so that was the start of the thing. That's why we, uh, yeah, we got the file from the courthouse and, um, and that's, that's the beginning of, of getting the warrant to go in and ask questions. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was a serious deal. And now we're awaiting, uh, there's another file on, it's a little more messy that also involves criminal fraud and food and regulatory charges called Saracola Farms. It's a chicken produ- or chicken processor in Brantford. And uh, they are charged, they had an employee that claimed to be a whistleblower and, uh, and said that they were bringing in conventionally raised chicken and selling it as organic and antibiotic free chicken with special product claims. Uh, Do you see, you know, as consumers' tastes get more and more specific and more and more demanding, uh, do you see more of these issues arising in the future with claims of, for example, gluten-free or organic or free-range, and we can keep going down the list, but it seems like every time you go into a grocery store now, there is more and more hyper-labeling that's happening, and I wonder sometimes whether all these regulations are followed and what are... What do you see happening as a food lawyer? Yeah. Well, I mean, so first, we've got to separate uh, gluten-free out of that bunch. If you've ever talked to anyone with celiac, it's like... People know. People know. Right. And like, if you're... I, I, My heart goes out to those folks because they can't have a bite without having some anxiety over whether the oil that, uh, that their corn tortilla has been fried in also services flour tortillas. Uh, like, that's how sensitive folks are. Right. Uh, I mean, zero tolerance for allergens is I believe 20 parts per million, uh, which is not high. And so often 
if it's lower than that threshold, there's no recall, there's no regulatory action. It just is, and it's a part of cross-contamination. Uh, but for celiacs, uh, I know a few who are super sensitive, and that's tough. So you get to break out the public health concerns from the the more peace of mind concerns, mm-hmm. right? So when you start to and, and ethically spending your dollar is really important. It's something that's again somewhat novel, but but really a wonderful thing that Canadians are doing now, mm-hmm. uh, and and that takes some critical thought over uh, what the job of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, in fact, is. Uh, so you've got all of these uh, private third-party um, uh, bodies that that assess whether something is ethically raised or sustainable or those sorts of things, and and the question for the federal government is: is the job of the feds to grab those products off the shelves, to do some supply chain testing to make sure that they're actually they are what they say they are, or is it? to allow consumers to do their own investigation over whether something is sustainably raised and find the labels that they trust. Um, I mean, ultimately, they're product claims. So so they're governed under a few pieces of legislation, if they're misleading. Uh, and so there's tons of jurisdiction there. But in terms of an organization that has limited resources, it's really interesting to figure out uh, when and, and where they choose to intervene to protect Canadians. And so, again, that's why that, that, that Moochie and Saracola Farms, these criminal charges mm-hmm. are so interesting because they're not about public health at all. Right. They're about your belief and, and your trust in, in labeling. Right. And that's clearly it's extremely important to the government uh, seeking the fines that they did and initially charging criminally. Um, so, you know, wrapping up here, I, I kind of have uh, a question I like to ask anyone everyone but i i want to modify the question i ask everyone to you a little bit uh usually the question is what's sort of your prime time commercial for every canadian about the law but for you my question is if um as a consumer walking into a grocery store or a restaurant what's like a one or two key piece of information that you think you have that's really valuable as a food lawyer that every canadian should know all I would say is be critical. You think critically. If you think critically and you don't just coast, you'll raise questions that are completely salient to what the product is. Um, I can't say that it's some broad piece of advice like you get what you pay for because that's not always the case. Uh, I can't say that there's a gold standard uh, in, uh, in processing. I mean, the fact is, is we have this unbelievable abundance of inexpensive and highly nutritious food in Canada. Um, but if you really care about certain things, then, then walk into a grocer and think critically about how you spend your dollar. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for uh, being part of Up Council, Glenford. It's a real pleasure. And uh, let's go hit the market and uh, buy some food. Sounds great, Sean. Let's do this.